I talk about meditation practice and Buddhist practice as having two dimensions to it, like the breath that comes in and out. Um, one part of breathing in is just to quiet the mind and open the heart and center oneself. And then the other part, breathing out, is to get up from your meditation and bring that understanding or compassion or care to the world around us, and that those two are really part of the same cycle of breath. Um, Or as they say in Zen, there are only two things you sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. Just say the garden is the whole world, really. Um, tonight I want to go come back to basics and talk about the in-breath, the sitting, the meditation part itself, and then maybe in the next week or two we'll talk again more about extending it in, to action in the world. The word in Sanskrit or Pali for attention or mindfulness is sati, uh, or sati sampajanya, which means presence or attention, full awareness, awareness of this life, this circumstance we find ourselves in, this mysterious circumstance we find ourselves in. And when I first started to learn mindfulness practice, I confused it a little bit with detachment, because in my growing up, in my own family of origin, there was um, a lot of conflict. My parents fought a lot. My father was um, frequently pretty violent and he had a, um, he would, he would get paranoid and he would get um, angry and, and then, then turn violent. And so my way of dealing with it was to kind of withdraw and get very detached and watch it all at a distance. And I thought, well, that's what mindfulness is. You just get detached from things and then it won't touch you. Um, But it turned out I was quite wrong. Um, That's called fear, as it turned out, really. And I had, you know, there was good reason for it. Um, But when I started to really train in the monastery um, and work with my teacher describe what I was doing, the teacher said, no, 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 what you're doing is you're moving yourself away from experience out of fear. That's a habit. And mindfulness is, is not the detached witnessing. It's the capacity to be fully present for the experience of life with balance, with an open heart and an open mind. It might be translated in other languages as presence or intimacy in one Zen uh, saying to be Mindful is to become intimate with life. Or even one translation speaks about it as a kind of sacred presence, which is a word that's good to use because we live so much in a culture that is defined by the absence of the sacred. Now, when I begin to speak about this quality of presence that is cultivated in meditation, mindfulness, I think about the visit that Thich Nhat Hanh has made several times, this great Vietnamese Zen master to Spirit Rock. and Because a lot of people came, we had to do it outside, so there was like two or 3,000 people sitting on the hillside here, meditating. We built a little kind of stage for Thich Nhat Hanh and sitting on the hillside for the morning. People would begin to practice. And I remember how beautiful sunny day... Um, 
how it was when Thich Nhat Hanh, who would wait until people had been introduced to meditation by some of his students and settled themselves in, then he would come and teach. And he would walk up the road here very, very mindfully and very kind of slowly with a certain elegance in his walking meditation. And in fact, he walked with, with what looked like such care and attention that all, you know, 3,000 people went, ah, it was like a little swoon. Oh, that's what it means to take a mindful step. You could not only see it, but it's almost as if you could feel it in some way. And around the time that Thich Nhat Hanh came here, he was also invited to a series of meetings um, that were put on in San Francisco, the World Forum that was organized by Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, and the, the first year for the Gorbachev World Forum, which I also was able to attend um, at uh, certain points, um, Gorbachev invited some of his um, friends and colleagues, which at that time were people just coming out of power. So there was um, Maggie Thatcher um, from England and the former Secretary of State George Shultz and various political leaders and environmental leaders and so forth from around the world. And then he invited Thich Nhat Hanh. And he wanted a whole part of the program, which they didn't give to him. He said, all right, I'll take lunch. You know. So there where they were at the Fairmont, sitting and having lunch, all the kind of power players, and talking about policy and how you deal with the conflicts in the world and, and what we do about you know, the difficulties from some perspective or other. And Thich Nhat Hanh's response to that, and as he began to speak over lunch, was to say that the only way that you can deal with continuing warfare and continuing environmental destruction and continuing racism and, you know, the kind of uh, insanity that we perpetrate on one another is to stop and to find a place in yourself that is still and peaceful and compassionate and wise, and not through your heads, but you actually have to come back to the direct experience of life. Um, And from this still place, what he spoke of as deep listening, then the solution will come. It won't come in this other way. And then he said, okay, everybody pick up an orange. There were baskets of orange on the table. And he led a 25-minute eating orange meditation. (laughs) Hold it, squish it, smell it, you know, stroke the outside. I mean, and here were, you know, all these people. They didn't know what hit them, basically, (laughs) you know. It just stopped. I mean, here was this whole big political thing, and then all of a sudden, 25 minutes of eating an orange with Thich Nhat Hanh. What happened? Um, but he was right. And we're not going to be able to take care of the, these kind of terrible dilemmas unless we pay a different kind of attention to ourselves and then to one another and to the earth. To stop and be alive and be really present with an open mind and a free heart. And the invitation then of contemplative practice, and of course the Buddhist tradition is that of mindfulness, but every great contemplative tradition, the Christian contemplative tradition, and the Sufis, and the African, and the Mayan, it doesn't really matter, all understand about this quality of stopping and bringing a caring attention, a sacred presence to this life we've been given, this mysterious life. And mindfulness, if you will, has different dimensions to it. The first is 
learning to see or notice or open to what's here. And it's, it can be trained in us. It's the ability to notice where we are clearly and openly. And then from that comes a capacity for a wise response rather than just reacting out of our conditioning and our habit. And the beautiful thing is that it can be trained. Um, and modern neuroscience has shown that there are whole quite distinctly measurable changes that happen in the nervous system when people train themselves to be mindful and be attentive. Um, you know, thickening in the prefrontal cortex and various things like that. When you practice for a while, basically neuroscience just says that what you pay attention to starts to change your nervous system. The mind and the brain are in this dialogue together through your whole life, through your whole adult life. And the fundamental practice then in, in meditation is to begin to cultivate or develop or trust this capacity to see what's present, to feel what's present, to know what's here, which is mindfulness. And then the second part of it, if you will, is the quality not just of seeing or learning or listening, but actually of being, of learning to abide or rest in the place of mindfulness itself, to find the place of stillness and peace in the midst of our experience. And in the Buddhist tradition, it says that this is the resting place of all those who are awakened, all the Buddhas and everybody else who awakens. The abode of the the awakened ones is the abode of mindfulness, present with life as it is, balance, openness, with the 10,000 joys and sorrows of our experience. With form and emptiness and birth and death and gain and loss and so forth. Now to do this means that we recognize that the most important thing for us in our life really has to do with the spirit that we bring to circumstances. Who is your enemy, asks the Buddha. Mind is your enemy. Um, No one can hurt or harm you more than your own mind. Who is your friend? Mind is your friend. No one can benefit you and bless you and bring more goodness to your life than your own mind well-trained, not even someone who loves and cares for you. So there is this necessity, if you, if you want to live wisely, to actually tend to your own inner life. The Buddha goes on, he says, I know of nothing more helpful than mindfulness. How is this so? One of the examples I, I like to use is of my good friend John Kabat-Zinn, who started the trainings in mindfulness-based stress reduction in a clinic in the basement of a medical school in Massachusetts 25 or 30 years ago um, that have now spread through hundreds and hundreds of hospitals and places around the country. Um, And the clinic that he started, he went up and did grand rounds after he opened the clinic um, for all the doctors in the medical school and so forth. And he said, what I would like you to do for our mindfulness clinic in the basement is to send me all the patients that you can't help. And he said, there's fabulous things in modern medicine of all different kinds, as we know, but then there are ones, people with chronic pain and, you know, 
injuries and cancer and things like that, where you've done all you can and you feel like, we don't know what to do with these people, send me the hardest cases, please, and we'll see what we can do. And then he said to me, as we talked about it, he said, that's because I have the strongest medicine. And I said, what's that? And he said, the, the strongest medicine is the medicine of mindfulness that lets us be with what's true the way that it is, to, to, to see and be with the truth. Um, to be with things as they are. And then, of course, if you can change them or you know, work with them in some way, fine. But much of what happened is that the people who came down to his clinic were people who were unable to and unwilling to be with the facts of the way their life was. In Zen it says, if you understand, things are just as they are. And if you don't understand, things are just as they are. So, so mindfulness is an invitation to to pause and say, how are things? This, what, what is the way things are? And to begin to recognize the circumstance of our life that we find ourselves in. And so there, you know, with John, people would come and they would start to investigate their pain that they'd spent, you know, 10 years getting back surgeries and, you know, exercises and all that. And, and they tried all those things and it didn't go away and they were frightened of it. And they'd start to look at their fear. And they'd start to be mindful of their pain and the contraction and all the stories that they would tell themselves. You know those stories, you know. And what it would mean to actually be with the experience rather than the story and the contraction and all those things, seeing those and come back to the direct experience itself. And to allow all those pieces as if to bow to each of those pieces. Here's the pain here's the stories and here's the fear and so forth, here's all that and here we are with the space of mindfulness that opens to all of it. I was visiting my my twin brother in Maine um, not, you know, a year or two ago and we went along the rocky coast of Maine um, and there was a little um, uh, road that went down to, wasn't exactly the beach because much of Maine's coast is so rocky, it's not really the beach and and there was a kind of a a dead end by the by the water, um, and then a, a road sign that had a narrow leading in two directions. And in one direction it said rock, and the other said hard place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and in a sense, it was just saying, okay, here's where we are. This was John's clinic. This is the circumstance that these particular people found themselves in. And instead of saying, well, I want it to be different, because they tried all these things, how about being where we are and seeing if there's a way to be present for this as part of our experience? This is the Buddha in difficulties. Um, and usually we just flee away. We, things are unpleasant, we try to avoid them, and things are pleasant, we imagine, we want more of it. And it's actually hard to be where we are. So mindfulness begins to invite a different kind of capacity, a presence, a listening, an intimacy with the way things are. And as we do, everything goes, ah, thank you, here we are with it, even with the fear, even with the pain. So this is a poem I read already not so long ago in Monday class, but it's so much fun, I'm going to read it again. From, from the Palestinian poet Naomi Shihab Nye. 
called Wandering Around an Albuquerque Airport Terminal. <laughs> After learning my flight was delayed four hours, I heard the announcement, if anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days, but gate 4A was my own gate, so I went there. And an older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly. Shudoa, shubiduk, habibti, stani, stani, shwemi. And the minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, no, we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who's picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. So we called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her, southwest, right? She thanked him. She, she talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad, and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had ten shared friends. And then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took up about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered, sugary, crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag and was offering to them to all the people at the gate. To my amazement, not a single person declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar <laughs> and smiling. There are no better cookies. And then the airline broke out free beverages from coolers. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person at this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other people too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. And it gives this beautiful poem, Not Everything is Lost, it gives the sense of what it means to bring an open attention, a, a, an open-hearted, clear, gracious attention to what is here, including the dilemmas of life and the difficulties. And this is the training that's been central to these temples and monasteries of the Buddhist tradition, but really of all contemplative life. The foundations of mindfulness, to be aware of the breath as it breathes itself. Every tradition has breath practices. The ability to be aware of the body and the heart and the mind. And to notice just the way things are. Sometimes they're contracted. Sometimes there's fear or grasping or anger. 
Sometimes there's graciousness or ease or openness or compassion. To actually be able to be present with the play of life experience that is here each moment. Because, in fact, every moment is new. One of the most amazing things about this mysterious existence we're in is that nothing can be repeated. Oh, we try. I assure you, we all try. But it's never exactly the same as it was. Nothing can be grasped and repeated exactly how it was. It's always something new that comes. And to be mindful is to notice that this is a moment unlike any that ever presented itself before, a fresh kind of listening. So Annie Dillard writes about, she says, when her doctor took her bandages off and led her into the garden, the girl who was no longer blind saw the tree with lights in it. And it was this for this tree with lights in it that I searched through the peach orchards of summer and the forests of fall and down winter and spring for years. And one day I was walking along Tinker Creek thinking of nothing at all and I saw the tree with the lights in it. And I saw the backyard cedar where the morning doves roost charged and transfigured, each cell buzzing with flame. And I stood on the grass with the lights in it, grass that was holy fire, utterly focused and utterly dreamed. It was less like seeing than being for the first time seen, knocked breathless by the glance of life itself. I remember being with Krishnamurti when he used to teach the Indian sage, sitting down in Ojai in the oak grove, and he would sit on this one little wooden chair under a little white canopy and give lectures to, you know, a thousand or however many people were seated there in his, in his oak grove. Um, and he would be quite still and be speaking about this amazing capacity to be in the moment where we are. And he'd go on for a while. I remember one morning he was talking about freedom and freedom from birth and death. And, and then he was also a little bit of a scold. So at some points, you know, you should do this. At sort of toward the end of the morning, he said, well, I was thinking of stopping here, but I have some other things I might teach. Should I go on, you know, or are you tired? And they said, no, no, we're not tired. Please go on. And he looked and he said, well, then you haven't been paying attention. You know? <laughs> if you were really paying attention, you would be tired. You haven't been really listening. I just thought that was kind of funny. But then he went on and he said, it's not even about being tired or not being tired. It's really about being present here in this mystery. He said, when the mind becomes still, when we deeply listen, neither grasping nor resisting experience, not trying to make it any way than it is, then you can see what is true. And it is the truth that liberates and not your efforts to be free. It's not like you're trying to escape from something, but to see the way things are and know it. So mindfulness is this quality that we learn in meditation and in our practice to listen without expectations, without judgment, 
and the judgments will come. You'll be paying attention and the judgments will come. And you can just notice, oh, thank you for your opinion. That's the judgment. I like this. I don't like that. But it's not to believe the judgments, to listen without plans or needs or ideas about something, a kind of innocence that one Zen master I studied with liked to call don't know mind. He would say, what is love? Don't know. What is uh, consciousness? Not really sure. Don't know. You know. Um, how did you get incarnated in this body? Don't know. You know what happens when you die? Don't know. You know. Um, he'd ask a whole series of questions. People would keep saying, "Don't know," and he'd say, "Oh, good. This is the mind, the don't know mind. You just keep don't know, don't know." <laughs> and that was his invitation. To innocence, really, to seeing afresh. And it's an incredible gift to see our life, the people we live with, our friends, our our loved ones, the community we're in, the earth, all the variations of life, to see it with this don't-know mind. It's an incredible gift to be listened to in that way. For our body to be listened to, the environment, for someone that we care about. To, to see some, it's so easy to see one another from habit. You know, I go home and here's my wife and I know who she is and we've been together for almost 30 years. And, you know, on the other hand, I don't know. And she's really mysterious and she happens to be a particularly mysterious person. <laughs> I got to tell you, you know. <laughs> I have no idea what goes on in there quite a lot of the time. And it's completely intriguing, you know. So this is a story from a spiritual teacher poet, um, Oriah Mountain Dreamer. She wrote in one of her books. She was helping at a meditation seminar And she said, at the very end of a very long day, a small, thin woman in oversized parka introduced herself as Isabel. Can I do this meditation on my own, she asked. Yes, I said, I'm sure you can, although people find it helpful sometimes to establish meditation with a group. It's just hard to keep it up on your own. But what will it give me? What will I get if I do this every day? Her tone took on a whining quality, and I felt my irritation rise as she continued. How fast will it work? Will I feel a difference after a week? How will I know it's working? This was exactly the kind of thing I detested. The quest for the quick fix. The desire for guaranteed outcomes. The simple answer. Do this and you will get that. My sons were waiting for me. I wanted to go home. I took a deep breath, looked directly at Isabel, and set my knapsack down on the floor. I tried to slow down my words, thinking that maybe if I spoke slower, I would feel more patient. Well, I said, meditation is more a process than a goal-oriented activity. It can help you become more aware of what is going on within you and around you, and this can help reduce stress. My best advice is just to try it and be patient with yourself. (laughs) I picked up my bag and started to button my coat. I really did have to leave, and I wanted to get out while I was still feeling virtuous for not snapping her head off. (laughs) But as I started to move away... Isabel suddenly reached out and grabbed my arm with surprising strength. 
But what I want to know, she said, her voice rising in a crescendo that bordered on panic, is it will it help me find God? If I meditate, will I have an experience of something or somebody out there listening, somebody really with me? And a wave of desperation swept out from her through me, and I was surprised to find my eyes filling with tears. This woman wasn't looking for an easy answer or a guaranteed formula because she was lazy. She didn't want a simple plan because she was unable or unwilling to look critically at what would work. She wanted something she knew would work and work quickly because she was hanging on by her fingernails. She wanted something that would work in a week because she was afraid that she simply wasn't going to make it through months or years. And I put my hand gently over Isabel's where it gripped my arm. It's okay, Isabel. We all feel desperate at times, I said. Nobody does it by themselves. We all need help. And her hand relaxed a little beneath mine, and she started to cry. And we talked for a while longer. There is no them. There's just us. And when I left, I did not leave one of them. I said goodbye to one of us, a human being, doing the best she can, searching for the home for which all our hearts long. It's such a gift to listen to another person in this way. It's really such a gift to listen to ourselves in this way. And this is really what meditation invites us to do. It's not about a state or an experience, although those come sometimes and they're glorious or terrible, depending. But they pass. So here we are sitting, and there's these moments of stillness between the words. Notice. Notice what your experience is just as you sit here, listening. There might be interest. Or if you feel yourself sitting here, you might feel that you're a little bit tired. Could be excited. You might be a little restless or bored. Oh, he slowed it down. No more stories. Do I have to sit with myself? Mm. I want the stories and the introduction, you know, the something really good. But how about if we just stay with this where we are now for a little bit? You know, the state of your body and What's going on? And here we are in the room with all these people around us, and it's Monday night, and you know we're coming up toward Thanksgiving and then the winter solstice. And you're just sitting here and noticing all this. And as we sit, often there's a sense that we're waiting for something more to happen. My friend Sharon Salzberg calls this waiting meditation. She said, a lot of people do hours of waiting meditation. (laughs) You know, or avoidance. We sit and we get a little bored or a little lonely or a little restless. And if we're home, then what do we do? Well, I don't want to be bored or lonely. We open the refrigerator, right? We get up, turn on the TV, something to not feel it. So here you are, and it's just this, your body and mind on the earth in this particular moment. And it's confusing. Is this meditation? This isn't it, is it? This couldn't be it. I mean, what I really want is endless excitement and perfect peace. (laughs) 
or at least a great Chardonnay or something like that, right? You know? And so you can see all the expectations of we got to keep ourselves going, we have to have some other experience. And yet here we are in this mysterious humanity. And it's really good to stop, even though there's a kind of tension in it because we've been keeping ourselves going for so long. Stop, well, how do I do this? Ah, a few more breaths, just relax, keep going, letting go. And I used to fall into this too, you know, the waiting, the expecting, the rehearsing. It's come so easily. People come on retreats and they say the day before they come to have an interview to talk about their meditation, you know, they can spend hours sitting there imagining what they're going to talk about and rehearsing for these 10 minutes or 15 minute conversation. And so before I would teach, I'd sense myself getting nervous, you know. I want to help. I want to please people. I want to be admired or liked, you know. Or at least I don't want to make a fool of myself. As Zen master Ryokan, the Japanese poet, used to say, spring morning, my rounds of begging is finished. I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddhist shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. It's really such a refreshing poem, you know. And then I realized how much suffering there was in the in the rehearsing and the imagining and the expectation and you know how will i look and how will i be and how will you be and so forth and, and then i realized it's not about me you know i'm not up here to i'm up here to teach the dharma i'm not up here to teach jack my, <laughs> talk to my daughter when she was a teenager you know and i'd be doing some she said dad you teach mindfulness, chill, Dad, it's okay, you know. <laughs> it was so helpful having a teacher in the house, right? <laughs> to be aware of mindfulness is to learn to trust our deep capacity to be present for this moment. Full, empty, pleasant, painful at times, sometimes very exciting, sometimes much more ordinary, and yet amazing even in its ordinariness. It is, really. We take so much for granted. <clears throat> Rachel Carlson, the great naturalist, said that if I had uh, a gift that I could be granted, it would be to ask the, the fairy that presides over the birth of the children of this world that they be given a sense of amazement and mystery that did not diminish through the whole of their lives. Just that. Or Brian Swim, who talks about you know us as part of the earth itself coming to life. He said, here it was a molten ball of lava 4.5 million years ago. That's the earth. And now it can sing opera. I mean, what an amazing thing that we get to be part of this. So we begin to be mindful And as soon as we stop and just become present, we also feel the kind of flywheel of expectations. How many ideas and needs and hopes and likes and dislikes and so forth we bring to experience how it should be. And the trap of that, 
always trying to make it different in some way when we're lost in it. I had a friend tell me a really poignant story. He took his father, who's quite elderly sometime, some years ago, um, back to Europe um, to where and his father was a, a soldier in World War II and it was um, very traumatic where he'd been a lot of, lot of death and so forth. And it was really the defining moment of his life in some way to be a soldier during that period in World War II. And it really made this friend of mine understand why his father was so difficult because he still carried so much trauma. But anyway, they were in one part of um, France and they were going to be driving from Amsterdam down toward Marseille on this road. And at one point his father said, he said, which way are you going? His father said, you can't go that way. The Germans bombed the hell out of those roads. And he could feel in that moment how much his father was still living in the trauma that had happened 50, 60 years ago. Unconsciously, unwillingly, perhaps still, we have this kind of conditioning. The fears, the traumas, the prejudices that we get conditioned by of different kinds, the discrimination, the racism, the discontent that we don't even know about so much and it plays in us and the kind of suffering that it can cause. Our expectations make a kind of wall between ourselves and life, the body of fear. And mindfulness begins to remind us that we can be present without judgment, without a plan, neither resisting what's difficult, because it's here. Who doesn't have, somebody not have difficulties or pain? Nor resisting what's pleasant. Some people are afraid of what's pleasant. What am I going to do? It's pleasant. Oh, that's scary. Seriously. We get a lot of that in meditation. All these kind of grim meditators, you know. (laughs) Serious. Spiritual life is a grim duty, right? Instead... Mindfulness is this open-hearted presence that says, let's be with this moment, with this breath, with the state of experience as it is now, with compassion and ease, a kind of freshness. So we sit, and it's as if our own body becomes the temple. And we allow ourselves to open, even as you're listening to me. Feel the state of your body. Now, if you like, you even close your eyes for a second. A kind of inward listening, not with the ears, but listening with the heart, listening with the whole body and being. And the first step of mindfulness is not to respond or fix anything at all, but to feel the music of embodiment itself. Vibrations, tingling, throbbing, pain, pleasure, warm, cool... It's called the river of sensations, the river of physicality, the river of life. And when you feel it, it's never, never fixed. It's, it, it, it's, it really is a river. It's always moving. And as you rest, attending to the body, make space for it. Like the space between notes. 
the Buddha says if you put a teaspoon of salt in a cup, it will be very salty. But if you put the same teaspoon of salt in a lake, you won't even taste it. Let your mindfulness be like space. Not a solid body, but just feel all the space around your body and in it, even between the vibrations and hot and cold and tingling and areas. It's almost like the body floats in the sea of awareness or in the space of stillness around it. Vast silence. And then, as if to bow to it, you can name sensations, tingling, plain, pleasure, pleasure, throbbing, throbbing, and just give them space to open and move like the river that they are. How does your body like it, this open attention? This willingness to make space for all its body embodied experience. And when you pay attention, things change. Sometimes they dissolve and go away. Sometimes they sort of stay the same and float there. Sometimes they get more intense or worse or better. Let them do what they do. Relax, breathe, let go into the space of mindfulness, trust it. And now notice, too, what moods are present, what feelings there are. There might be contentment or sadness or bored, restless, or maybe loving, tender, or jealous, or anxious, or longing, or irritated. A thousand different feelings. Just notice maybe there's two or three of them. And as if you could bow to them, name them gently, oh, irritation or boredom or excitement or calm. And let them open, let them show you their dance. As you name them, give space for the feelings and notice what happens. Make sure to 
let the breath breathe in the space of awareness. Be present for all that's here and relax, open. Let your eyes open again. When you read the in Buddhist psychology, Buddhist teachings, the description of our experience, the Buddhist words say that our life is five rivers, the river of physical sensations and senses, the river of feelings, the river of perceptions, the river of thoughts. You know that one. And then the river, the stream of consciousness itself. And that what we are is actually a flow of experience that's always renewing itself. Can you feel what it's like to make space for your emotions or the sensations of your body or the experiences that you have here and now in the reality of the present. When we do this, it allows us then to be with one another or with the bay trees and the oaks and the environment that so needs our attention and the oil on the bay that you know is getting cleaned up from the oil spill. And it's only when we let ourselves come back to rest in the present that we can see and respond wisely. Body, feelings, mind, it's the same thing. The mind stream. Muriel Ruckheiser, the great poet, wrote, the world is made of stories, not atoms. And it's a good description of our life because we have this storytelling factory in there. And the mind secretes stories the way the Salivary glands secrete saliva all the time. These stories keep pouring out, you know, telling us things and orienting us and worrying about things and planning and imagining and describing and, and you know, analyzing and so forth. And you sit quietly and say, okay, it's now it's my time to meditate. The mind says, whoopee, story time, you know, <laughs> and it just keeps going. So what do you do? You also notice the storytelling mind. You know, and sometimes I suggest that people note the top ten tunes because it's like, you know, talk radio, only a bad station generally, right? <laughs> and tremendously repetitive. You know, it's the same stories that were playing on talk radio last week and in many cases last year. You know, if you, you would change the station, honestly. You know, if you got your mind on the radio, you'd say, no, 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 let me look for something better than that. You would. Or if the person sitting next to you started to whisper into your ear all the things you were thinking, at first you would kind of get irritated. Why, won't, why are they saying such weird and crazy things? You know, won't they go away? And then you would think they were completely mad. How dare you say that? So what do you do with all that? You can't do anything. You just bow to it and say, oh, this is the mind stream. If you believe the stories, you're lost. The mind is a good servant 
the thinking mind is a good servant, but a poor master. And the space of awareness lets us step out of the thrall of the stories and know them and really come back and rest in the heart. My teacher Nisargadot says, the mind creates the abyss, all the stories of me and somebody else and those people and that kind and how we're different and who, what I need and so forth. The mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. So we sit and we notice the thinking mind and then come back to our breath and to the place of compassion, like that story of Isabel, all those things. And you say, oh, here we are in this mysterious human incarnation. How did you get in here? I don't know. But here we are together sharing this. And what will we do with it? Can we not do something beautiful? And I remember a few years ago when Ajahn Jamnian, who's one of my teachers from Thailand, who comes every year to Spirit Rock from his forest monastery, he was working with the staff, and there was a woman working in the front office who answered the phone at Spirit Rock. And she said, it's really hard because on some days I get so many calls with such different energy. People will call and they're desperate to get in on a retreat or they're angry because they left something here and they can't find it and where's the lost and found or they need something. Or they... And she, she said, and it's not like one call, but I get dozens and hundreds of calls and all this energy. And what should I do? And he said, when the phone rings, don't pick it up on the first ring. First, take a couple, two or three breaths, like Thich Nhat Hanh would say. The phone ringing is your meditation bell. Ah, two or three breaths, here we are. Then pick the phone up and say hello. And before you do any response, try and listen to what is the energy that's coming in this call. Is it need or desire or fear or anxiety or longing, you know, or clarity or anger? Just as if, you were, as if you were to bow to it, just acknowledge, oh, it's this kind of energy. And then, then this person said, yeah, but what happens if I'm overwhelmed and it's t- really, it's like this is somebody. I, he said, you have a hold button. You know, you can put people on hold for a while if you need to. Take a few more breaths. Say, I'll be right back. Okay, center yourself. Yes, can I help you again? It's really not very different than our own mind. You know, I love that line from... Annie Lamott, where she says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone, right? So people come and meditate together. So it's stepping, the mind creates the abyss, the heart crosses it. It's dropping from the mind to the place of the heart that knows our connectedness, that trusts the space of awareness, that rests in compassion. If you could turn to one of the people near you, you don't have to, but if you could, and then you would see it's really the same, actually the same process. You know, imagine somebody sitting near you, getting angry at you, about to blame you for all the things you've done wrong. You know what you've done wrong, and they know too, and now they're going to tell you, right? (laughs) Or imagine somebody who's sitting near you who's really needy, and frightened and anxious and they need time and help and they're desperate like that story. Somebody is going to... Or imagine somebody turning to you with great appreciation and love. You know, I just want to share this experience and you've been part of it and it's so wonderful. You know, praise and blame. Basically, gain and loss and pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute and praise and blame. They keep changing in our lives. So you would get that from the people around you. 
And as you practice mindfulness, you would be able to listen, turn to them, you know, and say, oh, this is blame and this is praise and this is liking and disliking and this is need and so forth, which we do in ourselves, as if you could bow to it and realize that they're no different than you are, that we're really all in it together. Our own joy and fear and pain and so forth is mirrored in the humanity around us. And so then you could bow and offer your blessings. Yeah, here you are having your human experience like I have. Now sometimes people say, well, this training in mindfulness, how long will it take? (laughs) Not exactly like Isabel, but you know. And I remember being with a teacher in India, this fellow Nisargadot, um, a wonderful old man in Bombay that I spent some years visiting on and off. And he talked a lot about freedom and our capacity to be free wherever we are. And one morning in his little room where he met with people, a young guy came in, asked a couple questions about meditation, didn't seem to, and freedom, didn't seem to understand that much, but had a little bit of, and then left. Went away, you know, after not very much time, and never returned again. And a few days later, one of the people in the room raised their hand and they said to Nisargadat, they said, what about somebody like that, you know, who came, asked a couple questions, they were a little bit superficial, at least one of them was, but, you know, a little bit interested, and then never never came back. You know, how, however can they awaken, or is, is you know, what, what's likely the fate for people who only dabble in this? In this, this Argadot got this wonderful kind of smile on his face, he said, it's too late for him too. Now, what does he mean by that? And he said, he said, what, what I mean is this. He said that the part of that person who knows who they really are, who's questioning, you know, I know I'm not just this conditioning of my culture and so forth, that there's something so much deeper in us that's mysterious and sacred. The part of them that remembers who they really are started to wake up or he wouldn't have come up these stairs. He wouldn't have come to this room. And the reason I say it's too late is once that starts to wake up, um, he's on his way home. It's just the way that it is. And in that way, you really can't do it wrong. Yes, you're mindful and you're awake, and then you fall asleep. Again, asleep at the wheel. We all do in conditioning and the culture which wants to put us to sleep. I mean, it's part of it, how it operates, modern culture. Let's put them a little bit to sleep and they won't ask such hard questions about some of the stuff that's going on. Seriously, it is. Um, So we fall back asleep. But you don't stay there because the heart knows. In the Buddhist text it says, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. The sons and daughters of the Buddhists, remember your true nature. And something in us does remember. And the dignity 
and graciousness and compassion that we might admire in some other person is our own birthright, is our own capacity to be free no matter what the circumstances. We too have that capacity. It's not just Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years in Robben Island with a graciousness and, and magnanimity that changed the face of South Africa. But it is your birthright as well, no matter the circumstances. And Nelson Mandela said there were times in there when he hated his captors and they stole so many years of my life from me. But then he realized that wasn't who he was. That wasn't where he was going to live, from where he was going to live his life. Nor need you do so. So the invitation of meditation is so simple. It's to stop to listen, to be, to begin to trust this being. And that allows for intimacy, care, attention, compassion, from a place of being rather than the place of fear, from a place of being rather than the place of, you know, trying to fix it without really deep listening. Somebody told me that they'd been at an event some years ago with the Dalai Lama in, in L.A., and um, a person was asking this question about doing so many things in their life in order to get approval of others. And I don't know if it's true or not. It might be apocryphal, but the Dalai Lama said, once you're over age 40, it's time to stop seeking approval. If you made it to 40, the universe obviously approves of you. <laughs> Now it's time to give approval to others, you know. And I don't know if you said it or not, but it's, 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 you know, it's worthy in some way. Now it's time for you to offer your blessings. And we're coming up to Thanksgiving this week, which I realized in terms of this night's, this evening's talk, just after I had kind of completed thinking about what I was going to say. So, oh, I won't do a Thanksgiving talk. But in a way, we have. Because in another language, to be attentive, to, to, to cultivate and trust this capacity for mindfulness is to be grateful for the life we've been given with its measure of sorrows and its measure of beauty that everybody has and no one gets out without this. You have birth and death in you and around you. You have joy and sorrow. You have gain and loss. It's humanity and you're in it. This is, this is the game. And to have gratitude that we get to share in the beauty of this earth and in the mystery of it with one another. Um, I think that's the real thanksgiving. Uh, And out of it comes a, a real graciousness. This is our temple, not Spirit Rock or even the Bay Area, but this 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 home planet, if you will, that we share. Let's sit for a minute.
so <clears throat> turns out this is the Albuquerque Airport terminal. You know, these are all your fellow passengers. There's only one world, said Storm Jameson, novelist. The world pressing against you at this minute. There's only one minute in which you are alive, the minute here and now. The only way to live is by accepting each minute as an unrepeatable miracle. This is Thanksgiving. So, thank you for your kind attention, for the ability just to sit together, um, for your generosity here. Let's do a simple one-syllable chant before we go out into the dark of the autumn evening. Most of you know in the Buddhist tradition that there's a seed syllable that's the summary of these great texts of perfect wisdom in in one sound because it's considered the first and the last sound of life. But most importantly, it's the seed syllable in Sanskrit for letting go. It's the seed syllable, ah. I just want us to sing ah for a little bit and then we'll go out. Ah, add harmony, ah, 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 week ahead that's blessed with some periods of silence and a return to your listening and mindfulness and may you give your approval to others, your blessings to those around you. Have a good Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.